In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. <clears throat> Today's gospel comes from Jesus' famous sermon on the mount. In this sermon, Jesus references the law. When someone referenced the law in ancient Israel, there were a few things they could have been talking about. The first is the Ten Commandments. The law could also be a reference to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the law of Moses. In this case, the law and the prophets together would be a reference to the Old Testament. Another reference would be the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a collection of oral laws, which developed more recently around the time of Jesus. The laws of Moses dealt with principles, such as do not work on the Sabbath day. This is a principle to live by, and the people were expected to apply this principle to their day-to-day -day specific circumstances. But this raises some questions. Is it work if I go out to the field to harvest? Probably. What about making food for my family? What about tending to my son's wounds from playing too rough? Adapting the principles of the Mosaic Law requires a certain comfort in the ambiguity of life. The scribes were unsatisfied with this ambiguity and created the Mishnah to address thousands upon thousands of specific circumstances. This required definitions, such as, what does it mean to work? In an agrarian society, work could reasonably mean to carry a burden. But there's ambiguity here too. What is a burden? A burden could be food equal in weight as a dried fig, or milk enough for one swallow, or honey enough to put on a wound, etc. Work could also mean to write, but what does it mean to write? Writing was defined as writing any two letters, so long as they could be read together, such as on a wall, or on two walls that formed an angle, or on a page, or two pages that could be put side by side. Writing was not defined as one letter on one page and one letter on another page somewhere far away, since they could not be reasonably put together, or a letter in the sand in one place and another letter in the sand somewhere else. The oral law, the Mishnah, became a list of nitpicky and petty rules. Also, a certain authority was needed in order for someone to make a judgment call on how the law should apply in specific circumstances. This authority rested with the scribes who had determined these laws, and the Pharisees who separated themselves from most of society so to faithfully practice these laws. You can see how such analysis for applying Mosaic law to everyday life and expanding upon the Mishnah would lead to endless debate and discussions. Often the scribes and the Pharisees would try to drag Jesus into such debates. At these moments, the scribes and the Pharisees would reference the law and mean these petty rules, whereas Jesus would reference the law and be describing the principles God gave to Moses. The Mishnah was sacred to the scribes and the Pharisees. To them, serving God is synonymous with keeping all of these thousands of petty rules and regulations, and therefore, adherence to them was a matter of life and death. What the Mishnah did was it took the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai by God, and it added a man-made component to it by adding all these extra standards. 
the law became a burden to the masses who could not follow it. The standards were too high and not necessary. Remember that Jesus perfectly observed the law as given by God, but did not comply with the twisted law given by the scribes. This means the Mishnah made it impossible to actually follow the Mosaic law. Jesus often broke the Mishnah himself in seeking to do what was right in many several circumstances. The Mishnah also took away the burden of man to determine for himself how to apply God's moral principles to certain situations. The average person could not grow in wisdom from the richness of the Mosaic law, but instead was expected to memorize and blindly obey the scribes' rules. In school, when you're given the answers to the test beforehand, there is not a lot of learning involved. Similarly, when you are told how to act in every single circumstance, there's not a lot of room to grow in character. There is not a need to rely on God for strength. Just do what the scribes and the Pharisees tell you to do. It is clear that when Jesus refers to the law, it is not the same thing as what the scribes and Pharisees mean by the law. So it is time for Jesus to give his own interpretation of the law. So seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them. You heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. Here Jesus is quoting from the Ten Commandments. It is not a mistake that Jesus has ascended a mount and recites the law. As the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus is acting like Moses, giving the people the law. St. Matthew ends his telling of the Sermon on the Mount by saying, For he taught them as one having authority, but not as the scribes. Jesus does exactly what the scribes have done, but turns their analysis on its head. He quotes from the law and then expands it. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. In the world of the scribes and the Pharisees, a sin occurs once a rule has been broken, once the murder has taken place. However, according to Jesus, a sin has occurred far before the murder. The sin has occurred within the heart. How can the Pharisees possibly police this new standard? How has Jesus not just made the law even more burdensome than that of the scribes? The Mishnah did not give people principles to live by. Instead, it gave them an unnecessary burden. Here, Jesus is giving us a principle to live by. Do not get angry without a cause. Do not look after others lustfully. Love your enemy. Turn the other cheek. These principles seem more burdensome than the Mishnah, and in many cases they are. And we will fail to keep these commandments of Jesus over and over again. But Jesus also says, Come unto me, all you that travail and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. Instead of condemnation for not following the commandment, Jesus offers us refreshment. In giving these commandments as he did, Jesus is teaching us about ourselves and the disordered nature within us. Murder is obviously a sin, and people don't just wake up in the morning and murder their brother. Most people do not struggle to keep this commandment at all. But murder is the extreme end of a pernicious beginning. To murder someone is the end point along a path that can start with anger towards someone. To even start along this path is sinful. Unless we change the starting point, 
not getting angry without a cause, we will walk this path and end up somewhere along it. Maybe we yell out at someone. Maybe we hurt others' feelings with unkind and selfish words. The point of Jesus' teaching is to show us that the cause of sin lies within our own disordered desires. We will be slaves to sin so long as we continue with disordered desires. St. Paul addresses this in the epistle. Our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. When St. Paul says the old man is crucified with Christ, he is talking about our inward disordered desires. When we are baptized into Christ's death, that part of us dies, so that we are no longer slaves to sin. But also, the Holy Spirit enters into us to help us to change and to become freed from sin. Sin is often characterized by discrete actions such as murder, lying, cheating, or stealing. And to be sure, these are sin. Sometimes it is more helpful to think of sin, though, as a condition that affects our actions. This condition is a result of our disconnectedness to God. A condition that left untreated will result in death. It's a condition that has left us with disordered desires and an inability to see plainly the reality of the world. It's not enough to not do bad things. It's not enough to just do good things. If we are truly going to love God and neighbor, we must actually desire the best for them. This means we must change our disordered desires. And the idea sounds kind of preposterous. How do we change our disordered desires? You like what you like. You don't like what you don't like. Often we will hear from our consumer culture to do what makes you happy. Do what you want. Lean into who you are and go for your desires. It actually is not us who changes our desires. This is the work of God who will do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within all baptized Christians. It is through prayer that the Holy Spirit's presence becomes more known to us. We must let the Spirit look at the parts of us that are disordered and that are broken, because this is how we receive healing. It is through the continual and faithful life of prayer and turning back to Jesus in perseverance that will heal us and change our desires. St. Benedict realized the real work of man is prayer, so he set up a rule of life that reflected this reality. Our own prayer book takes St. Benedict's rule and in the offices of morning and evening prayer, has made it accessible to all the faithful, not just those who are called to a monastic life. Prayer is our labor. Prayer is the only way to truly make progress inwardly. Revealing our disordered desires to God through prayer is how we are healed. More specifically, it reorders our desires, and it helps us to see the truth about God, neighbor, and self. As the bishop pointed out last week, When we labor in Christ, it is not futile. Our labors will bear fruit. And this is our work, to pray. To be sure, it will take perseverance and it will take faithfulness. God prefers us to grow inwardly that we desire to love God and neighbor. God wants to undo the condition of sin within us. And over the course of years, we find that we are less angry, that we have more self-control, that we have been strengthened to do what is right in the particular circumstances we encounter. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving us an invitation to follow him. For Jesus has only pure and right desires. What flows is his perfect actions of loving God and neighbor. 
When we follow Jesus, we will go where Jesus goes. We were baptized into his death. Our old man and all his disordered desires were killed. The more we pray, the better we are able to hear the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And the more effective we are at keeping Jesus' commands in the specific circumstances we find ourselves in. When we persevere in our life of prayer, we become more free to love God and neighbor. Over time, our desire to lash out, to yell, to be rude, will be as undesirable to us as to murder. This is our old man dying and our lives freed from sin, as St. Paul puts it. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.